I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month, Quentin Tarantino. Fucking tasty beverage. Fucking professional thief. Fucking riddle me this, Batman. Fucking rule number one. Fucking Christian names. Fucked up repugnant shit. According to fucking Hoyle, this is Quentin fucking Tarantino. A prose equal parts obscene, self-aware, and compelling, delivered by characters oozing with style. His is the cinema of cool. Tarantino's words, characters, and films are now permanently burned into the pantheon of American movies. Obsessed with movies from a very young age, Tarantino came of age during the 1970s and was weaned on a diet of its popular films, TV, and music. It was a decade marked by the waning of the Hollywood studio behemoths, replaced by a dizzying array of lower-budget foreign films and inventive genre pieces. The spaghetti western, the kung fu flick, the blaxploitation film. These genres and the radically stripped-down production and cinematography styles used in them built the foundation of Tarantino's cinema universe. While working as a video store clerk in Los Angeles in the 80s, Tarantino took acting classes, showing a talent for writing character-driven scenes. Then he co-wrote and directed a 70-minute film called My Best Friend's Birthday, a 16-millimeter drama that was partially destroyed in a fire. Tarantino would refer to this as his film school. Then his feature debut, Reservoir Dogs, a slick, stripped-down gangster movie about a band of thieves in the aftermath of a botched heist. It was the movie only he could make. It would go crazy on the indie film festival circuit and brought Tarantino's name into the fore of studios and producers. His screenplays began to get traction as Tony Scott helmed True Romance, but it really wasn't until 1994's Pulp Fiction that he became a household name. A grisly, non-linear pastiche of three different stories about criminals in modern L.A., its surprising box office success pushed Tarantino's genre-mixing, ultra-hip storytelling into the popular vernacular. Followed up by his Elmore Leonard adaptation Jackie Brown, with 70s exploitation icon Pam Greer, it would then be another six years before he released his love letter to kung fu flicks Kill Bill in two parts. Flash forward to the 20-teens, his contrafactual WW2 epic Inglorious Bastards was showered with critical praise, followed up by the provocative antebellum western Django Unchained. And with another homage to spaghetti westerns on the way, Hateful Eight, Tarantino is showing no signs of slowing down. Tarantino's singular cinematic vision, his trademark remixing of old films, soundtracks as mixtapes, and showcasing the close-up of beautiful female feet are the subject of today's panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians. Let's go to the panel. First up, returning panelist, screenwriter, sage of cinema lore, and producer of SciFest LA, the world's first science fiction theater festival, Welcome back, Matt Goodman. Great to be back, guys. Love to talk about Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> cool. Second, our mirthful misanthrope, writer, comedian, Rosalind Townsend. Hello. Hi. And last but not least, Jules to my Vincent, King Schultz to my Django, Mike Gillis. Hey, good to be here. Nice to have you. All right, people, strap on your holsters, slick your hair back, and fire up the reel-to-reel. We're going into the past, but through the present. It's all about Quentin Tarantino. 
Matt, I, I want to start with you. You're, quote, in Hollywood, unquote. <laughs> I, I want to see from you, what what's the importance of Tarantino for film, both past and present? Well, you know, I, I am in Hollywood right now. I'm in between um, Hollywood Boulevard and Sunset Boulevard, literally uh, one block each direction. That, so I that's think I too can... inside baseball. We don't know about we don't know about Los Angeles topography. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, let's just say that I think that um, the city I live in today is <laughs> I'm not going to say the city that Quentin Tarantino built, mm. but I showed up here right after he had made his mark, and it it the city is a different place because because of him. And um, there are a lot of examples for how Hollywood has changed because of Quentin Tarantino, the the screenwriter being something that's more important than it used to be, the idea that an auteur can actually exist, um, and looking backwards for the best of Hollywood and bringing it to, uh, to the forefront of, of, of uh, studio film today, I think he is, at least in the past 20 years since I've been here, he really is responsible for that. Nobody else is doing that, and, and I thank him for for doing that because the city itself is a better place for it. Wow. Well, that's a ringing endorsement. Mike, Mike, what's, yeah. your, what, <laughs> what's your take on, on Quentin Tarantino, Mike? Well, I look at Quentin Tarantino through two lenses. The first one is that he was one of the first filmmakers I got into when I wanted to get into cool things when I was like between the ages of 18 and 20. And we've talked about this before, that sort of cycle of personal taste that we all right. go through and 18 is sort of the tail end of your adolescent taste, which is, the way, by the way, the worst part of your taste of your entire adult <laughs> life. That the stuff you like when you're like 16, 13 is just utter shit. And you usually get to the point where you turn 30 and you go, you know what? I really prefer the stuff I liked when I was six. Isn't it usually when you're 16 that you read Atlas Shrugged? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're just your most intolerable <laughs> during this part of your life. And I look at Tarantino. Tarantino was one of those filmmakers I got into at the tail end of that, around 18 to 20. I wanted to like cool things. And of all the things and the people that I got into, the artists that I liked at that age, Tarantino is the only one I still like. Hmm. That when I go back and look at that through the lens of being 36 years old rather than being 20 years old, mm -hmm. I still like it. And actually, I like it more and appreciate it more than I did when I first saw it. Mm. And here's the other thing is that I became a fan of him during that first era, you know, where Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown were coming out. And that was sort of this like, hey, this hip new film director. And clearly he's been doing it for a long time. And I look at other people who are coming up at the same time. Really good example, like Kevin Smith, mm, mm -hmm. or other movies like you say Donnie Darko or American Beauty. Those have not aged well at all oh. because I'm not 20 anymore, and they're not right. deep and smart and special. Where not only has Tarantino lived up through his older films, his newer films have only gotten better, mm. and I can't say that for any of those other directors. Mm. Uh, you know, Roslyn, I want to get your take at the beginning here. I have no idea where you're coming from on this. In fact, I know so little about your taste, and we know that you're on a peyote vision quest right now on the studio. <laughs> you, not, you had not, to bring that not up. Not actually peyote. You had to bring that up. Okay. Are, are you are you hot, cold on Quentin Tarantino? Well, where, well, gee, Casey, through my drug-addled haze, I don't know if I can say. Um, it was what what Mike mentioned, the thing about cyclical 
um, cyclical tastes. I, that doesn't apply to me. My tastes are basically a, a mushed up ball of twine that someone has thrown into a dumpster and let stew in coffee grounds and oh. a little beer. Like, and I think it's because I get into things very non-linearly. I, I, hmm. I, like, I end up watching movies 20 years after they came out and things like that all the time. Tarantino was kind of like that, but it did happen relatively early in my 20s. And it kind of... His his movies in particular taught me that there can be I, – I, for some reason, was very sanitized when I was younger. And it wasn't something that my parents were like, you can't watch this movie. Mm. It was just like, ew, it's gross. And Tarantino's films were the first things that showed me I could look at something that can be incredibly viscerally violent and bloody – and still tell an amazing story where I'm cringing and I don't necessarily want to watch it all the way through, but I, I'm invested now because I know the storytelling will always consistently pay off. Hmm. And, ah. and his stories have never, I've never been disappointed by the ending of any of his movies. And I think that that was kind of, that's something that's kind of had a um, impact on me in terms of my formation of that ball of twine known as my wow. tastes. Wow. So, uh, so I, I, you, you sort of, Dipped your toe in it, Matt. I just want to uh, just to say from my from my film historian hat, my amateur film historian hat. You know, Quentin Tarantino sort of absorbed movies that came out in the seventies, which was basically at the time when the studio system was gone. The studio system that you knew from the old uh, Catherine Hepburn, you know, Cary Grant days was completely dead, and things were being rewritten. There was more sex and violence, and this was sort of how he grew up. Um, Tell me about the ways that you think, Matt, that he uh, that he sort of changed Hollywood uh, in the wake of the set, the seventies and the eighties. Which I don't know was eighties a fallow period for American cinema. I'm not sure, um, but expand on that a little bit, Matt. Well, I I think there's a difference between between someone who sort of copies the past or even steals from it and someone who metabolizes it. Hmm. And that's what I think he's maybe the maybe the best at. Um, as far as directors that we have today and maybe ever because there was never a, a like you said there was never a, a time when the studios were at their weakest uh, it, uh right at the beginning of the 70s and sort of right before maybe et star wars that kind of stuff in right. the late 70s right so there's this moment where theatrical feature films some of them regular families you're going to see including my family when i was a kid we, we would pretty much go see anything that came out and he would end up seeing something like rolling thunder which is william <laughs> devane getting his his hand put in a uh garbage disposal and uh quentin tarantino ends up naming his one of his production companies after that movie because you know it's this this is a not a family film but it's just a film it's not a genre film it's not a it's not a drive-in film it's just a movie there's a big movie star in it and you go see it, and this, the filmmaker decides that this is how it's going to go. And this is before PG-13, so mm. you could probably get away with a lot more. And he was exposed to not only movies and television that were uh, sort of this post-60s, pre-80s sweet spot for maybe American creativity along the lines of you know what was happening in Europe, or they were metabolizing the six, 50s and 60s films, and they were making their own, and those were inspiring people like Scorsese, right, and, right, and uh, and they were making the Italian American New York version of a French gangster film, and everything's kind of you know snake eating its own tail, and then Quentin Tarantino comes around, and guys that are a little older than me who um, were inspired by the same things 
were coming up with these same connections, which is I love these movies from the 70s. They have these amazing, um, memorable moments. But when you rewatch them with uh, your memory tells you how great the film was. Hmm. VHS comes out. You have access to the movie again, and you realize that Rolling Thunder is an interesting film that has about 12 minutes of really cool stuff in it, yeah. and the rest of it is incredibly <laughs> long and boring, which is why people have a problem going back. So I used to look at my older brothers who were filmmakers and film buffs, and we would all look at each other and go, man, this, 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 was, this is not as good as I remember, hmm. but the moments that we did remember that were good were still good. So hmm. there's there there. And yeah. what he did was he took the best ideas of that time and he put them all together and he didn't make a pastiche. He made, you know, uh, bouillabaisse and <laughs> that, that that's the difference between um, what came after Quentin Tarantino films, which are people making uh, copies of what he was trying to do in misunderstanding that long and involved dialogue with quirky new characters. Isn't what he was doing or if it takes place in a diner Ergo, it has to be hip, and they were get they were taking the wrong things from sure. what he was doing and trying to emulate him. Sure. That's why he hasn't been replicated. I think the only person who's come close, which is in a weird roundabout way, is uh, who are also I don't think their careers would even exist if it wasn't for Quentin Tarantino's uh, success with Pulp Fiction. Are Paul Thomas Anderson uh -huh. and Wes Anderson, uh -huh. hmm. yeah. and um, and this is how you take someone who uh, you know basically is a fluke comes along and gives people what they really want. And then someone else says, well, I want more of this. They go out, they find someone like P.T. Anderson and they make a movie like Hard Eight or a movie like right. uh, Bottle Rocket. Right. These are, this is somebody trying to make a Woody Allen version. You know, if you want to make a, a Woody Allen movie, but you can't get Woody Allen, you, you, you say, okay, I want to have, uh, you know, a Nevishi New Yorker talking to, it doesn't work. So you end up with a Texan who's trying to get his friends to commit a heist so all these movies, you know, we wouldn't have Boogie Nights without without Reservoir Dogs. Hmm. And I'm not saying Paul Thomas Anderson wouldn't be working. What I'm saying is those initial films would have not been interesting to produce if Lawrence Bender and, and, and Quentin Tarantino hadn't somehow by hook or by crook made Pulp Fiction. So, Mike, what in Reservoir Dogs, let's just let's take it back to the beginning. We'll we'll not really talk about uh, my best friend's birthday because it doesn't yeah. even survive. But I've not even seen it. Um, let's let's talk about Reservoir Dogs and, and what what elements of Tarantino are already are already there in Reservoir Dogs. And uh, for a extraordinarily low budget movie, like what, why does it still do what it does so well with so little? Well, I think that's exactly what it does is it does so much with so little. The big thing is it's a heist movie that doesn't actually show the heist. Right. That the heist has already either happened or it's about to happen. It's this big hole in the middle of the movie that, one, it would have been the most expensive part to make, mm -hmm. but it's also the part where things happen crazy, things happen fast, and things happen in a way where we have to try to stop and figure out what the fuck just happened. And rather than showing it and giving us this objective view of what happened, we just get everyone's individual yeah. pieces of it. They're like, what the fuck happened? What It was Mr. Blonde. The guy right. just went crazy. <laughs> and all we hear is his uh, side of it. We hear other people's side of it. We hear Mr. Orange. We never actually see the jewelry store. We never even see the exterior of the jewelry store. Right. So really what we have is a movie that could have been something like Ocean's Eleven. Mm-hmm. 
But it's not. It's all of the pieces that aren't Ocean's Eleven taken and turned into a movie. Hmm. It's them sitting in a diner arguing about whether we should or should not tip a waitress. (laughs) And it's them sitting in a warehouse trying to figure out what went wrong. Do we have a rat among us? Right. It's mostly just people standing around talking, except for like a torture sequence and the gunplay at the end. Mm -hmm. There really isn't a lot of action in it. It's a lot of tension. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the special Mm -hmm. sauce that Tarantino brings is that a lot of even his later movies like Django Unchained and Inglorious Bastards, yes, it's a Western, yes, it's a war movie, which are both genres that are really well known for lots of shooting and action and explosions, but there isn't a lot of it. Mm-hmm. There's this long, growing tension that's just palpable where you just go, oh my God, this is going to end badly. Right, right. Like you feel this thing growing and growing and growing and you know it's going to explode at a certain point and when it does it's incredibly satisfying Hmm. he knows how to be the build up and he knows how to stick the landing when the balloon finally pops Hmm. interesting Reservoir Dogs did you uh, busy yourself with that for this panel it's been ages since I've seen it but one of the things that I remember most prominently about it was the sense of tension that was built and I don't think that would have been nearly as successful as it was because you're right. It's essentially an action an action film with a lot of the action-y bits kind of chopped off. But it also <laughs> chopped off in the ear and the... Yeah. Oh. Ha-cha-cha. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. But um, the, the idea that it's so character-intensive and that a lot of them kind of... That you get glimpses into that characterization from what seemed like totally non-sequitur, weirdly tangentially related scenes like the tipping of the waitress always stuck in my mind hmm. so uh you know i i wanted to ask matt about this uh when we were previous panel was on the blade runner panel and um we there's all this talk about auteurs and about uh things that are included in a movie that are deliberate and certainly the thing you can say about tarantino and if you've ever heard him him talk about how he how he puts together his movies or his actors he's actually just sort of jigsawing together shots from other movies or ideas from other movies that are there. So really, in almost in almost every way, most everything that's put into the film, the frame is deliberate. Um, and I I think you you know Matt, you and I had a conversation about Blade Runner is that sort of the way of looking at film as if every element that you could possibly see or hear in a movie is deliberate might be overthinking it. But is that that maybe, sure. does that still apply to Tarantino or has, or has he just thought of everything? No, I, I think that first of all, he doesn't. He's not creating worlds that are that are that you can't control. Hmm. So, so if you're, I mean, I know people who've actually worked on some of his films, and uh, my eldest brother is actually in the diner scene for uh, in Pulp Fiction, no which shit. was like a four day, right? It was like a four day shoot, and I remember him call. I wasn't working in film at the time, but he called me and he said, uh, you know, that 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 uh, Reservoir Dogs guy is making a new movie with John Travolta and it's crazy and, and uh, I sent you something in the mail and he had stolen a leather car coat from wardrobe and sent it to me in the mail so I wore that for like two years <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then it was event- eventually stolen from me on a film set about five years later oh paint it forward so, uh, I thought, I moved, right I moved Steal with it, it and it, it ended up getting st- so, so someone somewhere has got it either way as far as Quentin Tarantino is concerned he's one of those for for right or for wrong, and I think for right, he's a filmmaker who who actually has pretty much as close as you can get to complete control over his films. Hmm. Um, again, like Wes Anderson's maybe another one, and I don't hmm. really think anybody else has that ability, or even even would want to have that ability. 
but is he the guy who's deciding what's what's in the frame and every little detail matters to him? Yes, he is. I mean, just look at the Jackrabbit Slims. Oh, yeah. How do you how do you argue how do you argue that 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 has to be the place in the movie to a producer who's making his first real big movie? In the, we have to have this specific place that it has all these things in it and rights issues and music and, and likenesses and, right. and someone looks like Marilyn Monroe. I don't know what that must cost. <laughs> apparently, but it, but apparently he it, completely agonized over which movie posters to put up on set. Right. So and personally, that's one of those. Exactly. I mean, some of them are probably his. I can't imagine that, you know, we know that, uh, you know, Steve Bashimi's, uh, you know, their waiter every, you know, they're in a car. It's not a booth. It's, it's so specific and it's built that all of his films are that way because thankfully, you know, his first one, you could, you know, pull, uh, reservoir dogs, you know, there isn't really a lot that you, that you can't pull off. Um, but everything else from on is it, it all looks like every little bit is the way he imagines it. Hmm. And they're really, I mean, maybe Steven Spielberg, but he's not a writer and, uh, no one's going to tell him no. But uh, and again, you know, the, the films that that Quentin makes, I don't think he's ever made a major studio film. I mean, really, honestly, he really hasn't. Hmm. So to have that kind of control with adult fare, I mean, he's not making PG-13 films and uh, is you not only unique, but is the reason why I think his movies work so well, because there's a lot of talk about the Quentin Tarantino sort of uh, red apple cigarette universe that right. he's created. And right. he, that and that exists. I mean, it, it was it his plan from the get go, or is that you have a lot of spec scripts that you write as a writer and you use the same names over and over and themes because this is what's interesting to you, and then some of them all get you don't intend at all in them getting produced, and then they do, and now you've got three different characters named Skagnetti and three different <laughs> women named Alabama, and are these the same people? Is are the Vega brothers the same Vega brothers of these guys? Right. And you know, originally it was probably the Vince Vegas, a cool name. And uh, and then that movie gets made, and then someone says, "Oh, I'm not going to change," you know. And now you have a universe that you've created. And he, I mean, there are the there are movies that he didn't even make that exist in that universe, like uh, Romeo and Michelle's uh, uh, High School Reunion really? exists in the same universe. What? It, there's a red apple. There's a red apple cigarette um, <laughs> oh, billboard wow. in the movie. But he was, he was dating uh, Mira Sorvino at the time, oh. and I have a feeling that if that would have worked out, she probably you know would have been his muse instead of uh, you know maybe uh, Thurman or someone like right. that. But that movie is a heightened reality film, and it you know it's com- it fits comfortably into the into the sort of Quentin Tarantino universe. But it's very interesting that you sort of talk about this. Uh... So the continuity of universes, because uh, I was trying early on in preparation for this to find a contemporary of Quentin Tarantino to sort of trace why he's important for a filmmaker to come along in the early 90s. And so, um, uh, and I know, Mike, you can talk a lot about this. Is I think Tarantino is the anti-Kevin Smith. Oh, how so? I think he's the anti-Kevin Smith because I, they two directors that came along uh, from the indie circuit with with the shoestring budget films, they were both sort of lauded at the beginning as having this incredibly unique uh, dialogue driven, you know, youthful, youthful sort of look at the film. They both, of course, have their own universe continuity. Um, They both star in their own films. They put themselves as characters in their own films. Um, But I think the Gen X. What's that? Director. Yeah. It's a generation X director thing where you're good enough to do it all and be in it too. Right. And, they are. 
Yeah, and but, also pulling a lot from popular culture and especially sure, movies. Sure, uh, real emphasis on clever dialogue. Right, and, but I mean, but the big dis- distinction being is that uh, I think, unfortunately, as much as I like the man, Kevin Smith has had a failure to launch as far as a sort of a second and third stage to his career, whereas Tarantino has been able to leverage exactly what he's been doing before on grander scales and more interesting stuff, and Kevin Smith like. He tries, you know. He he definitely pulls himself out of the gutter and tries to do a after a Jersey Girl tries to do a, you know, a bunch of other stuff and pop out. Yeah, try, <laughs> you know, Red State, which I thought was a was a brilliant move, but it ended up being pretty much a mess of a of a movie. And fuck, I haven't even seen Tusk. But it, they, they, these two guys seem like a, a great thing for contrast because yeah, uh, you know, Kevin Smith makes money now going around talking about his stories of making movies, and Quentin still makes movies. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I think that's a big contrast, and I think a lot of it comes from the fact that we put so many hopes on these people that I think there's these generations of filmmakers, and the 70s produced them too. Like, we talk about Scorsese and Stanley Kubrick and everybody, and you look at the 90s, and we sort of throw all of our hopes, like, this is going to change movies forever. Hmm. And not everyone can live up to that. And I think a lot of it comes down to a key difference, which is that Kevin Smith just doesn't have a... I guess you could say a visual style. He doesn't Hmm. have uh, the visual artistic vibe. He has a dialogue voice. He should probably be a playwright rather than a filmmaker. Where I look at, say, uh, Tarantino, and Tarantino has a distinctive visual style to his movies. They're not just, you know, double shot, over-the-shoulder shot, reverse. And I, I see that with Kevin Smith where I think there's a real filmmaker in Tarantino that isn't there in Kevin Smith. It's, Roslyn? it's Woody I, Allen. S- sorry, Woody Ma- Allen as... Sorry, as, Matt. Well, Roslyn, oh, sorry. what was that you wanted to say on that? I was actually just going to um, bring up the idea that when... It's not a technical thing like Mike was saying, but um, when you think of a Kevin Smith movie, you don't think of, like, this is the way it's shot, this is the, the more technical aspects. You think of Jay and Silent Bob, and you right. think of, like, a fictional universe of characters as opposed to a Tarantino film where you think of, like... This is the way it's going to play out. There's going to be this sort of narrative change here. These characters might do some of these things and have some similarities with other characters in the films, but they will definitely be distinct entities. And hmm. I think that's I don't think that's necessarily a problem in Kevin. I, th- I find Kevin Smith's movies enjoyable, hmm. but they're a very different animal. Right. Yeah, I think that Tarantino is much better at sticking the landing. Like you said, Rosalind, on endings, he <laughs> really knows how to hit a last note satisfyingly well but he also knows how to stick every single landing on emotional notes that he can do scary moments he can do terrifying moments he can do gut-wrenching moments he can do really unbelievably sad moments he can do ennui that's something we got with jackie brown Hmm. which is a slow kind of sad nostalgic movie he can do hip and cool where I think Kevin Smith doesn't know how to stick that stuff as well, and he does a lot of missteps when he tries to. Red State is a great example of a massive misstep. It's a mm. clusterfuck of a movie. Mm. And I think, that, speaking of movies that have not aged well, Chasing Amy just does not hold up when you watch it. Mm. There's mm. a lot of really weird problematic elements that may have been progressive in the 90s, but nowadays you just kind of shake your head and go, oh man, this mm. was cool once? This is, <laughs> this is really bad. Matt, Matt, what was you wanted to butt in on that? Well, I mean, if we're, I guess what would be analogous, I think, if you're comparing uh, Kevin Smith to what Quentin Tarantino does, and I think it's a good idea to actually compare them. They're almost parallel in their in their rise to success, but 
their success is totally different. Kevin Smith would be more along the lines of, I think, like Woody Allen, who wants to tell a story about characters and how it's depicted is not important. It's it, uh, it's basically, you know, wide shots, maybe, you know, maybe a close up here and there. It's nothing really. And the, the score is important. The, the setting isn't necessarily important. It's all about what the people are saying to each other. And uh, so that's that's sort of how Woody Allen makes films. And people who like Woody Allen films don't don't mind that it's a traditionally shot and nothing about it is visually or, or, or hmm. interesting. It's the characters are what's important. And if you don't like Kevin Smith's characters, you're kind of out of luck because there's nothing else to like. Quentin Tarantino oh, is more like a Scorsese-like Harsh filmmaker picture. where the, the craft of filmmaking, the actual f- film itself, you could watch it with the sound off. You could freeze almost any frame in a, in a Scorsese film. And, it, and it's cinematic. And Quentin Tarantino, for all the talk about his dialogue and characters, when it really comes down to it, you, he is a visual filmmaker. Sure. And in, along the lines, and for someone who never went to film school, uh, you know, officially went to film school, uh, versus uh, maybe uh, you know, like Roger Avery, who his, was his partner for a while, who did go to film school. If you watch, it's interesting, if you watch Roger Avery's work, it tends to be uh, more along the lines of you know, basic coverage in hmm. uh, Quentin's is more looks like someone who went to French film school, right? So, <laughs> right. Uh, if you don't like the story, you know, you and if you don't want to hear what people have to say with the Quentin Tarantino film, you've got a cinematic experience, hmm. and that means that he's putting in a lot of lot of work that people don't see. And Kevin Smith, on the other hand, is is looks to be like the kind of guy who writes a script, probably doesn't do a lot of revisions, knows he can get get it shot. Not that it's easy to make a film, and he does it in in the the experience of writing and making it, in and hanging out and in creating something with his crew and his actors. That's what's really important to him. And for Quentin Tarantino, that's clearly important. But we're really at the end of the day, what he's trying to create is a visual, you know, legacy. And most of the time, guys who've been you know filmmakers or directors who've been famous and had multiple feature films over like a fifteen year period at some point they get married and have children and then their films change mm-hmm. and you can look at the difference between road warrior and babe picking the city right? <laughs> so, now, that, now that the kids are gro- now that the kids are grown up he can go back to what he really wants to do of course you know which is not happy feet it's you know uh you know fury road so but quentin tarantino is not that guy quentin tarantino uh... is his his children you know to the uh you know a uh, little shrink over here. His children are his films, mm-hmm. and he has a collection of films, and he owns a theater. And people who love films are his friends, and other filmmakers are his friends, and he's in people's films. This man lives and breathes film. Kevin Smith, on the other other hand, is you know he's telling comedic, basic comedic stories, and makes the majority of his living making other people's scripts slightly funnier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think they're both very talented. But one one makes movies for himself, and the other one makes movies, hopefully, for everyone. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, with that, we're going to take our. Oh, go ahead, Rosalind. Oh, it was just a really quick thing. I was thinking of um, the. I definitely agree that Tarantino has a distinct visual style. But um, Matt was saying the idea of cutting out all of the dialogue, and if you didn't want to listen to a Tarantino movie, you didn't really. You could still watch it for the visual quality of it. Mm-hmm. I'd argue that you could even kind of take that and turn it into another direction where you'd cut out the dialogue and just listen to the songs 
particularly the usage of some music. That's true. Like when I sure. was watching Jackie Brown, the scene where all three of the people are driving to the same the bail bondsman's office, and right. you hear the different usage of each song in each car, and how like intensely powerful that was to show how different the characters were, even at the very end. I thought it was kind hmm. of stuck out in my mind. Was all a funny little note about music is obviously it's so important to Quentin Tarantino that he thinks about songs in mind as he writes scenes uh he kind of got screwed early on um by music rights people by actually drafting in oh he's listening to al green on the radio he got screwed early on because then they know they can turn the screws on you the the rights licensing people so from pulp fiction on out he writes a totally different song name in there and he knows what he's going to substitute with later <laughs> oh man <laughs> okay well yeah. uh, we're going to take uh we're going to take our first break and then we'll be right back with part two So I just want to pick up where we left off uh, of Quentin Tarantino's signature things that he does as a filmmaker. And one of the things I find the most fascinating um, because it allows you to do this game before he and they announce the casting of every of the next Tarantino movie is his his ability to revive dead careers. Yes. So uh, certainly you can't say anything about Reservoir Dogs, but but for sure, John Travolta, his career was you know look who's talking to and then and then we get pulp fiction and then that sort of like rockets him back up into the stratosphere as a as a notable actor and he's been doing this kind of rolling on forward pam greer in in jackie brown um david carradine in kill bill and of course the the i think the the best one which it's is christoph waltz like christoph waltz's discovery as a as a character actor who was all but forgotten about even in the you know even in his own country who becomes like this huge household name like the power of him kind of having these old heroes and then being able to come and revive them in sort of a quentin verse to me is incredible and every single time i see it i, I just get overjoyed at thinking about what how he's gonna what he's gonna do with it what was christoph waltz famous for before in glorious bastards uh german tv mostly just german tv yeah, okay he, he did films in germany but mostly german huh. television I think that's the thing that I really like the most about Quentin Tarantino is that we have this weird idea of an actor's lifespan and nobody has ever really said it or codified it anywhere, but it sort of became a rule without anything writing it down. And we all kind of chipped into it. And I think it's the idea of like, okay, we're just done with this person now. We don't want to watch this person anymore. That person was on that TV show or that sitcom. Therefore, they're not any good. And what Quentin Tarantino really does, and he brings it to every aspect of his film, is this is a guy who likes what he likes. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing throwing that way? That's perfectly good. <laughs> that, you just dust off David Carradine, and he is fucking awesome. And I'm going to show you that he's awesome. He's worth keeping around. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, t- uh, John Travolta was a good actor. He's like, he just needs the right role. Right. Samuel L. Jackson, who was created as a media figure in Tarantino movies, had appeared in things like Jurassic Park and Coming to America, but he'd never gotten that role he needed. It's kind of the Brian Cranston moment mm. where I, somebody wasn't big before and now they're great. I like how you consider Tarantino to be the freegan of casting. <laughs> <laughs> Jumps into yeah. the dumpster and finds the stuff past the sell by date that still works. Perf- and- you just cut off the moldy bits. <laughs> it's a perfectly well, good I, sandwich. I, I think- Go ahead, Matt. I think you're really onto something there. And what I find I just realized is really interesting about you talking about Samuel Jackson is that even when Quentin Tarantino doesn't have the ability to cast people, Samuel Jackson 
shows up in his universe because he's right. in true romance. Right. Yes. So he's it's not that he's casting Sam Jackson, it's that he's writing characters that are appropriate for a certain type of actor. And if you look at it, all his movies in, in, in you know from Django all the way back, you know, and from Lawrence Turney and and uh yeah. and yeah. Uh, even you know in it, it, to all the way up until like, you know, just look at the credits and most of the people who have one line of dialogue, the two guys in the beginning with the slaves and all that, I mean, there are so many names from so many uh, decades that these faces, I mean, look at Don Johnson. Don right. Johnson all these guys. is great in that movie. And right. right. And there are a million reasons why why you would want to cast these people. And the only, there's only one reason why you wouldn't. It's because in Hollywood, in America only, from what I can tell, there is this sell-by date. In the rest of the world, if something's good, it's going to stay good. That's why you can go to Europe and it's like people listen to ABBA, but not ironically, you know. It's like <laughs> it, it's, it's you. If it's good, it's going to stay good. It doesn't mean they're going to stay stuck in the past. But he does not subscribe, obviously, to this idea that this actor was great. I love seeing his face on the screen. He brings gravity to every scene. Or oh, I can cast him, even though he hasn't worked in twenty years. Or I can cast nobody who some has an agent who's supposed to be the next big thing. Mm-hmm. His movies rarely have a breakout star that no one's ever seen, right? And then goes on to greatness. Christoph Waltz is maybe a, a, you know a, a different example, but basically he's looking for the best man. tends to, tends to not cast a lot of women, but hmm. he's looking for the best man, and also like someone like uh, uh, L. Driver from uh, from Kill Bill. Uh, uh, Daryl Hannah, Daryl Hannah, because of her politics and because you know she probably is a little over thirty, I'm guessing, was like not <laughs> really in movies anymore. No one's going to believe her as anyone's mom right. or the quirky next door neighbor. You know, she's not quite Laura Dern. She's too, you know. So what? Where does she go? And she goes, you know, into politics. She, you know, climbs trees and drives a, you know, uh, you know, a, a car that runs on vegetable oil and sort of is quirky <laughs> and probably tells a lot of people to go fuck themselves and, and that's cool. <laughs> and he see, he sees her. He goes, she'd be perfect for you know a one-eyed swordsman in a sequel <laughs> to a movie that I'm probably never going to make and casts her. And is she perfect in the movie? Eh, you know, maybe not. But the idea that she could have easily played the bride. Yeah, she oh, could have yeah. easily been in any of these films. She could have been the girl. She could have been the girl in uh, in uh, Jackie Brown, uh, 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 Bridget Fonda. Right. All right. these all these actors are really great, and he because he has the ability to make these choices. He isn't because in, ultimately it's not because if you put X, Y, and Z actor in your film, uh, it's maybe it makes it more difficult to distribute or you know easier to sell in different places in the world but because it's a quentin tarantino film not a sam jackson film not an uma thurman film not a whomever film it's his movie first it's branded him first Mm. when the aviator came out no one said martin scorsese's newest film i mean yes it is but they said it's leonardo dicaprio's latest film when quentin tarantino movie comes out it's not a jamie fox film it's not a it's not a Uma Thurman film. It's a Quentin Tarantino film. And because of that, he all the people all the choices he makes for casting, you can't say it won't work because no one will go see Uma Thurman in a movie with one eye. Well, <laughs> it doesn't matter because you're not going to see the Uma Thurman movie. You're going to see the Quentin Tarantino movie. Right. And I think that gives him the 
the freedom to cast the best faces in the best voices in the best people for the parts. And then sometimes it works out. Sometimes those people actually go on and, and like John Travolta and have a career resurgence or, 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 or their, or their work is exposed to people who've never seen them before, like Sam Jackson. Sure. But most of the time, people who do big things like Michael Madsen is not in, in movies. He's not in studio movies because for, I don't want to get into why, but for whatever reasons, but he's in Quentin Tarantino films, not because he owes him a favor, but because he's right for the part, but only right. Quentin has the ability to cast him without someone saying no. Sure. Sure. Mike. Yeah. It's kind of weird when I look at this casting question and the fact that there are people he clearly likes and understands that they can be good. And you know who else kind of does this? It's Pixar. It's such huh. a weird connection to weird. make, but hmm. when you yes. look at the um, movies that Pixar puts out, nobody is really screaming for an animated movie starring Patton Oswalt or Craig <laughs> T. Nelson or right. Albert Brooks. Right. They're just right yeah. for the movie. And uh, like, whoever well, thought that a, a, well, a comedy uh, with Albert Brooks and Ellen DeGeneres would be one of the biggest movies of all your, time? Your point is well taken, but voice voice acting is different. Voice acting is a completely different beast than than on screen acting because you get to hide the fact that you're a wrinkly oldster. You know that's mm-hmm. true. And Quentin Tarantino is actually good at rolling out the wrinkly oldster and making you think, "Wow, this person is awesome." Mm-hmm. Robert Forster is a really good example yeah. of somebody that has actually popped up in other people's work because Quentin Tarantino reminded you that he's actually really good at stuff. He appeared on the last season of Breaking Bad in a really cool cameo. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, holy shit, it's Robert Forster. Yeah, why don't we and see it, more of him? Yeah, seriously, if if Jackie Brown hadn't come out with Robert Forster, you wouldn't have that, oh my God, it's Robert Forster reaction because because of Jackie Brown, I was reminded that this guy is awesome. Right, hmm. right. So uh, I want to pick up a thread that we were talking about before, which is, you know, uh, Matt eloquently put it that, you know, it's a Quentin Tarantino movie. It sort of, it succeeds by virtue of his ego. And certainly, Tarantino certainly has an ego, for sure. Um, and I suppose most directors have to have an ego to push your, push your vision through. But um, his is a bit, he's a bit of a no- notorious asshole, you know. If I'm to put use my, my new scale for judging celebrity missteps that completely po- pollute their entire career, I call it the Cosby scale. Bill <laughs> oh. Cosby is at a, at a one Cosby. You know, you'd be like uh, maybe Alec Baldwin for his drunken, abusive uh, phone call to his daughter. It'd be like on a point one five Cosby's. For Is it Qu- like the Richter scale where it's exponentially yes, bad? It, exactly, okay. exactly. For for you know, so for Quentin, like punching a guy for filming him, you know, like st- sort of stuff like that. And for and for him being generally an asshole. I mean, he he is a bit of a self indulgent asshole. I'd say he's like a. Point oh seven Cosby's. I'd say he's a point oh seven Cosby's. Does it, does him him being an asshole? Does it tarnish or this this ego? Do you think it overshadows um, the storytelling or tarnishes this? Because you know that's he, he also when he's his own a character in his own movie, it is a little bit distasteful. A little bit sometimes. I don't think it's gone as far as say Mel Gibson, where Mel Gibson. <laughs> no, anything after how many, about, how many Cosby's is the is the Mel Gibson meltdown? Huh? That's um, the equivalent to Cosby's, where like it's completely leveled the planet and there's no buildings standing. And well, yeah. it, if if it's like Cosby's, you 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 now cannot go back and watch something even in the past that was done in the past without being like, oh, that guy was an asshole, and I feel terrible for watching yeah it. I, sam, I guess sam called it the card line yes yes yeah. the card line but i think looking at, at mel gibson is is quite close to where say bill cosby is where the foundation is fundamentally broken 
that you just can't build there anymore. <laughs> and it, I think it, Cosby's it, at the point where it's almost like he dug deep and you have to rebuild the half of the planet to get that foundation well, back up. Well, it's weird because the basis of something like Mel Gibson or Bill Cosby is nostalgia. And once that nostalgia is shattered, it can't be brought back again, I think. Yeah, because then there's this cloud that hangs over even the older bits. Yeah. That it kind of retroactively does it. I guess Cosby is worse than Gibson because Gibson has a line... <laughs> Where, for Mel Gibson, I can watch stuff from the year 2000 backward, and I don't have that feeling. But if he looks enough like he does now, <laughs> then all I can think of is racist bullies. I was going to say, the look of an anti-Semite. Yeah. He sort of turns into that. Where I think if putting Quentin Tarantino into this, I'd say that Quentin Tarantino is just unpleasant and kind of smug mm -hmm. he doesn't come close to say like putting something in your drink or beating <laughs> up your girlfriend or i mean there's so many people that are so much much worse i'd say he's like a point three cosby so hmm. i i to bring back the idea of his casting choices vis-a-vis -vis his ego mm -hmm. you you gotta wonder so sometimes that sort of rampant egotism can be a good thing because a it will push forward your vision of yeah. something but it makes you wonder how intentionally he made those casting choices because he went, was he consciously, you got to speculate and go, okay, was he doing this thinking this will make me look better because these no one remembers these people? Or was there actively an element of altruism d dashed in with that ego saying, hey, this will help, this will help my buddy out who, you know, I hung out with. I think it's in service to his, I mean, I'm speculating too, but I think it's in service to his vision of he creates, he writes characters and he creates them and then at one point in time he pops up and goes oh you know kurt russell this has to be kurt russell like it only makes sense for kurt russell not that oh kurt russell's you know down on his luck and i should throw him a bone i think it's, it's not the pity former. yeah it's not pity at yeah. all i yeah. think a big part of it is that so he's freed as we said before in a way that other filmmakers aren't like Joss Whedon it just did one of the biggest movies of all time with Avengers Age of Ultron. He's very restrained. It's, it's already one of the biggest movies of all time? It is. Oh, okay. I mean, it was released a couple weeks in the world before it was released in the U.S. It's hmm. already big. <laughs> Fuck you, Citizen Kane. Step yeah. aside. <laughs> but, Avengers Age of Ultron. But if you're directing, like, say, a Marvel movie like, say, you know, Joss Whedon or James Gunn, I mean, these are massive movies, you're much more restrained in what you can say because you want to continue working for Marvel. You want to continue hmm. to work for big people because you really are reliant on a studio wanting to deal with you and give you this big movie Quentin Tarantino doesn't need any of that Quentin Tarantino can burn every bridge in the world yeah. and he can still come back and make that movie yeah. so when people do things that piss him off he has no barrier to him saying go fuck yourself mm. where mm. somebody like Joss Whedon will find a way to say it in a much nicer way and he has he's bad to be classier about it where mm. Quentin doesn't have anything that's going to stop him from getting work again because he's going to get that work he will make that work right so when he's in an interview with somebody and they ask him the same goddamn question about violence in movies and his responsibility for blah 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 yeah. people doing terrible things after the 200th time, he can go, you know what? Fuck you. Yeah. I'm not going to give you the same interview yeah, yeah. that yeah. I give a thousand times. And he's like, I'm sick of it. I've already given this interview a thousand times. Play stock footage. Why do you want me to say the same thing over and over, but I'm going to say it for you? He literally says that. Yeah. And he can say that. Yeah. So I think on one level, I imagine another filmmaker who's much more restrained in what they say while promoting stuff 
can get a charge of, yeah, fuck yeah, you tell him that. And it's sort of like watching a Tarantino movie. <laughs> you get that visceral release, you're like, yeah, tell that asshole with the microphone that thing. So I can I can get oh, that on oh. one level. He's being a dick, but I can totally understand it. Matt? I think that, you know, like most of his work, it's not an homage to the past, but like a lot of the filmmakers and directors that you see today, most of them, you know, model themselves maybe on Steven Spielberg or someone along those lines who, you know, has a reputation for for being like a nice guy and working well with others, which is his reputation. It might not necessarily be accurate, but that's the way he presents himself. And he's very political about the way he carries himself and wants to be respected and doesn't explain his work, doesn't do commentaries and, you know, wants to not, not an air of mystery, but it just sort of doesn't want to get himself involved in it and is considered an all-around sort of reasonable guy Mm -hmm. and if you want to model yourself on someone like steven spielberg you end up with someone like jj abrams who doesn't look like he's ever you know uh you know punched anyone in the face work out or been punched (laughs) in the face and then a guy like quentin tarantino who sees you know filmmakers uh you know like sam fuller as his hero Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a guy who is carrying a pistol on his hip at on set uh you know guys hard (laughs) drinking hard a lot of you know, let's do uh, a bunch of coke and make a movie, and the movie ends up better. Uh, those kind of guys, and he's he's not trying to emulate. Um, he doesn't want to be loved in that way. He wants to make good movies, and hmm. um, there's something the difference between being a director who's sort of like the captain of the ship, who's going to make sure that everyone has a good time, is one thing. But being the captain of the ship who wants to go into battle and win is another. And I, I think, I mean, I know he has a, a bit of a reputation, but he doesn't have a reputation of being difficult with actors right. or difficult with crew or difficult with editors or difficult with anyone who matters to the film. The only people he has difficulty with are people who are trying to judge his work in a way that most directors would say, well, your opinion is your opinion. But he's kind of like, you know what? I'm a scientist and your opinion isn't as good as mine because you're not a scientist. <laughs> and uh, just because you think this is how uh, you know thermodynamics works, you're not correct. Here's how it works. Because to him, it really does matter. Because it's not only is it a science to him, but it's an art. And he's one of the few guys that, you know, and I don't want to, you know, toot his horn for him because I, I know that he, he probably uh, is difficult in life. But... Um, I think he kind of has a right to be when it comes to people judging his work for stuff that's actually not even in it. You know, like people saying that the ear cutting scene was the most violent thing they'd ever seen in their lives. When in fact, you really don't really see anything. Right. And at the same time, I'm sure a movie, you could pick anything from movies and television where it was much more horrific. He is the reason why he gets so pissed off, I think, is because he's being attacked in this way because he was so successful. Yeah at making that connection to the audience without being gory about it. And if you want to see the other side of it, tons of movies came out after Reservoir Dogs and after Pulp Fiction that try to emulate torture, violent torture scenes because those all of a sudden became very hot. And I have no problem thinking that the sort of torture porn saw in all those types of films <laughs> yeah. came up out of the need i myself had a movie where i refused when i originally wrote it of course it ended up in it because how far can you refuse if the producer is trying to tell you know make a movie out of your script at some point you go fine you do whatever you want to do but i had a script where uh it got turned into a film and there was no torture scene there was no one tied to a chair and they were like well we got to have one of those 
hmm. where there's hmm. all this dialogue about doing something nasty with some kind of tool and you know, like what like a bolt cutter sure okay and it's a toe now okay wow. and eventually it turned into something that it has nobody really got tortured but it ended up with like Carmen Electra duct taped to a chair and you know it was silly <laughs> but they, you know, they forgot yeah. right right the classy stuff they forgot you know the bolt cutters that day or whatever it was but there was literally a moment where it was like, we need one of these. And it's like, well, not only is it 10 years late, but like it's not in there. It's not in there for to be uh, sexy or it's not in there to push buttons. Hmm. It's in there because it needs to tell us how incredibly over the top these type of workaday blue collar criminal guys are. Right. And in that way, it's like that torture scene or whatever you want to call it with Madsen in the stuck in the middle with you, which made you know, most people, some people can't even, it's like Jaws, you can't go in the water, like, you hear that song, you know, freaked out. Um, be, that was so incredible for people, I mean, actually sort of remade Michael Madsen's career, is because it, it's a, analogous to me, like, for Alien. When Alien came out, Star Wars established that the space was dirty, which everyone thought was kind of a cool idea. Mm-hmm. And Alien came out, and it established that people who work in space are just, like, blue-collar guys and girls. Hmm. Hmm. And they're just they're just they're not they're not Brock Johnson space pioneers. They're just <laughs> guys who work up there and are worried about the cornbread and you know if they're going to get you know their overtime. And his criminals, his universe is filled with people just like that. People who are psychopaths who ride around with cops in the trunk, but are also they get thirsty. Uh, well you know? said. So he shows up <laughs> with a drink. He didn't show up with a drink because it was a cool thing to say. Oh, I got this over at Big Kahuna Burger because he doesn't. He, but later that idea is there um he shows up because you know he just went through you know an ordeal he murdered a bunch of people it's it's you know he's thirsty so he's and they actually say they hang a lantern on it he actually says and you had time to get a beverage you know and he's like yeah because because i'm not a super villain 24 hours a day i don't i don't i exist off screen and and that's the it's almost like the microcosm of the entire film which is the heist and all that jazz that's supposed to be important exists off screen what we see is them surveilling the diamond place, and what? How does that scene end? Let's go get a taco. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Roslyn, I'm Roslyn. You had. I'm sorry. You wanted to jump in there. Oh, just there. The idea of um, violence being implicit versus explicit, I think, is a really, really important thing to keep in mind with his movies. Hmm. Um, and when we were introducing, like, how did we first see Quentin Tarantino? Blah 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 blah. It was. Um, I mentioned the idea of something being violent but also being able to tell a good story and i think nine tenths of that for me was the fact that you don't actually see an active like act of violence right there everything is kind of implied but it's still extremely visceral and leaves a huge impact like yeah i can't listen to stuck in the middle with you without either, like thinking of that scene now an ear so, yeah exactly so i think that that's really important well i mean he is a it's it's msg it's a flavor enhancer right um yes. and you just don't want to use too much of it so you think about the the uh, the bonnie situation scene in pulp fiction where mm-hmm. it's two guys showing up at the doorstep of their acquaintance in in a in, in a they have a problem and they need to leave right they need to leave it's punctuated this whole thing is exaggerated it's turned up to eleven by the fact that there's a dead body and they've got a ticking clock right now they've got to figure out how to get out of it you could easily write that scene where um, 
it doesn't involve a headless corpse in a car, mm-hmm. um, but they have to get out of there and they have to deal with this problem somehow. They have to, some, someone has to intervene. They've got to get together. They've got to work together and get over their, their, their petty grievances. You could easily write that scene without the violence. It's the violence that adds the tension there. It's the Hitchcock's bomb thing. Mm-hmm. How do you ramp up the, the scene between the two guys? You show a, an anarchist putting a bomb under the table with a timer for 30 minutes, and then you just watch them talking. You know, like violence does actually accentuate it. And, you know, you're you're right, Matt. There are far more violent and just pointlessly violent films that are actually there. And the fact that it keeps coming up is because I don't think I don't think people who have very little to say can say much other than his films are violent. I think that's what it is. <laughs> Small minded people, I think. Well, I think there's two different kinds of violence, and that's the differ- differentiation that a lot of these other filmmakers who are making things like Saw and these other movies that have the graphic on screen violence, like, oh, we gotta have somebody cut off a toe. We gotta have a toe. <laughs> and they don't understand that the thing that the violence in Tarantino movies have that they don't necessarily have, which is a point and a narrative purpose. Yes. The point of the torture scene in Reservoir Dogs is up until now, all we've had is talk. We've had people tell us that Mr. Blonde is crazy, that Mr. Blonde is out of control. We haven't seen it. All we have is these conflicting stories about what went down. You're like, holy shit, these people were fucking right. This guy is out of control. And... It has to be something really terrible. And again, the ear cutting off doesn't happen on screen. It just, ha- they see him start to saw a little bit and then it just pans to the left mm-hmm. and you hear the scream. <laughs> and I think that Tarantino knows that there's two kinds of violence in a movie. There's cartoon over the top, visceral, satisfying violence. Like, yeah, motherfucker, take that. <laughs> and then there's violence that's supposed to turn your stomach. And it's a difficult thing to do both of those in the same movie, and mm-hmm. sometimes both of those in the same span of about 10 minutes. But you look at a movie like Django Unchained, which does two things. It's also dealing with this social issue and this ugly past of slavery, and says, okay, when we, so, when we actually show the slavery bits, we can't go for visceral cartoon violence. It's right. got to be stomach-turning, it's got to be scary, and it's got to be deadly fucking serious. And then there's the moments where Django gets these motherfuckers on the other end of the gun. And now it's fucking satisfying. Now it's right. cartoonish. And now we show it. Well, how do, how do we answer charges that there, there were critics at the time uh, who drew from Jamie Foxx's Saturday Night Live monologue when he was doing it that he said that it was such a satisfying because he was doing comedy, by the way, yeah. that I get to kill a lot of white people. And then there were, of course, a lot of. I, I won't call them racists or whatnot, but a lot of people who took umbrage with the fact that, wow, we're, what, we're do, what we're doing is glorifying killing white people as a thing. How do you guys take that as sort of an uh, accusation against Django? As long as it's the right white people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the big thing is that these movies that he's done, I think this is a new era of his career – which is the revenge film. But not only that, the historically revisionist revenge film. <laughs> right. Which is that there is some ugly fucking shit in our past. Some ugly shit and some ugly fucking people who, according to Tarantino, just didn't get it badly enough. Yeah. <laughs> so he's going to go back and set that thing right. And there's going to come somebody, either it's a group of Jewish soldiers right. or it's going to be a freed slave who's going to go, you know what, motherfucker? History did not reverse this enough i'm gonna kill some of you motherfuckers in the most satisfying way possible Mm -hmm. because Django doesn't kill any white people 
Django kills the right white people. Right. <laughs> he kills slave owners. He kills people who brutalize people, who are cruel, who are bullies, who are just fucking vicious, who take pleasure out of dehumanizing people mm-hmm. and torturing them. And that's what we want out of a revenge film is that you want to see a terrible person get theirs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Payoff. The payoff, uh, Tarantino payoff is definitely a thing. Um, we don't have all that much time. Uh, I, uh, you know, one of the the treats is me being able to be my own little Tarantino when I do these uh, we do these panel episodes and I can choose people very specifically about the role. So I, for for my own kicks, talk about how Tarantino will, uh, shoots on film and will forever until he stops making movies shoot on real film because he is a purist and he believes that the that the magic of cinema has to do with the persistence of vision and. Uh, I wanted to talk to Matt because Matt and I have been friends for quite some time, and I knew that um, when I first knew him, and I don't think he has this job anymore, you used to be a basically a QA tester for film reels for the studio system, and uh, that's a job that just doesn't exist anymore, just much to Tarantino's chagrin. So, uh, Matt, tell us a little bit about shooting on film and why that's important to him and why it's maybe not so important to everyone else now. Sure. I mean, I think it's 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 almost a perfect analogy for how we're trying to describe what he does as a filmmaker. And just for a little background, what what I used to do was um, there was a division of Lucasfilm, and uh, what they did was they would sort of sit in with directors for studio films that would come out and uh, make sure they have someone, myself or a couple other people, and we would sit in with a director. Say an example would be like uh, the guy directed Down with Love, who's uh, directing the new Ant Man movie, or mm. like. Um, Martin Brest with for Meet Joe Black hmm. or uh, Scott for Gladiator. And you'd sit in the theater with this Titan and sit next to them in the dark and watch the movie. And they would go, oh, Russell Crowe's face shouldn't be that green in that scene when they're in the, you know, in the forest. It should be a little more like this. And then you would go back and forth and they would show him examples. And then eventually you would sort of calibrate your eyes and ears to the film. And then because, you know, they're busy people. Uh, they would leave and then you would sit there and you would just pretend to be Ridley Scott and you would and if you didn't like it with your Ridley Scott eyes, you would be able to go, nay, 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 you know, throw that one away. And, you know, it's like three thousand dollars a pop or whatever. So every once in a while they would be like, You're not really Ridley Scott. <laughs> but every once in a while, uh, you know, they would say we need a we need a, you know, uh, five perfect versions of this movie to go to the premiere and to the White House and Cannes or whatever. So somebody has to be responsible and having a Lucas THX logo on on your, uh, you know, on your card makes everyone comfortable. So and almost <laughs> everyone who did this job was either a, a writer or director who was shopping their material around town at the time. So it was almost a perfect job for a screenwriter who was trying to make a career for himself, which is what I was doing. Hmm. So we would sit in and watch the movie and then we would be left alone and be able to make these decisions ourselves. And all of it was film, obviously, at the time. Now, uh, I don't I honestly don't know how little of it is film. I'm sure people I know that directors, if they have the ability, will have prints made, which are probably about thirty thousand dollars per film, uh, maybe somewhere around there for their own archives. Hmm. So they'll have two or three made. And um, and I don't blame them because, you know, digital medium, you know, you never know where it's going to go. But if you have a projector in, you know, a monkey that can make the little wheel turn and you, you can make light go through it, you can actually see your movie. You know, if you've ever seen The Postman, they're watching Rambo <laughs> right. uh, and uh, and uh, uh, Bambi. And you couldn't you're not going to be able to do that, uh, you know, with the DVD player or some kind of you know HD projector or something. Right. So for him. 
and Steven Spielberg's the same way. A lot of people don't realize that. As far as his, the work being distributed on film, I think that's probably not cost effective because you've got 2,000, 3,000 versions of the movie that by the time it's been shown once could be ruined because film scratches, but digital you know, mm. formats don't. His work, and he's decided that the way that film cameras work and the limitations that they have and the advantages that they have are are worth it for him. Just like I said before that he's emulating Sam Fuller or whomever he's emulating, they didn't they didn't work that way. He's not going to work that way. Right. He actually writes the screenplays out uh, it, it, longhand, on, right? With a legal pad, yeah, longhand. Which you know, I I don't do that, and most people I know don't. And you know, people most screenplays are written on typewriters or, or whatever you know whatever you use. But he you know, he's also dyslexic, so I think that there's something there to that too. Hmm. And he. He puts it down in in the most sort of analog, tangible way. This is his process, and it makes sense. He doesn't want to change it, and maybe someday he'll shoot on another medium. All those things, but to have a champion for film, make, especially that it's him. I mean, Scorsese is a champion for it as well. But I don't think he, you know, he, he's going to do whatever whatever eventually the stu- a studio is going to tell him to do. Hmm. Quentin Tarantino can actually make his decision. And it's the decision to shoot on film in the organicness of film and how film physically reacts with a chemical solution and actually mimics the eye. It's very similar to someone who's a fan of vinyl versus right. uh, you know digital music, where anyone who knows mathematically that digital music is just a sampling of the sound. And the, and the vinyl is as close as you can get to the original recording. That's just a fact. Now... Is it worth it for the average person or the average filmmaker, if there is such a thing, to want to always listen to vinyl, even if it's not convenient, even if it's not cost effective? And for most, it isn't. And for most, it really doesn't make that much of a difference. Mm -hmm. Kevin Smith doesn't need to shoot on film. Woody Allen doesn't need to shoot on film. He may just out of tradition. But for Quentin Tarantino, I think film is important. He owns thousands and thousands of films. He has a film, uh, an actual theater with film projectors, and he shoots on film and he edits on film. And the reason for that is it's the same reason why he makes the kind of films he makes. Mm -hmm. That's the way he wants to make them. That's the way they're supposed to be. And it isn't that he's being a Luddite. It isn't that he doesn't like technology because he clearly does. He uses visual effects in an almost perfectly seamless way. He doesn't try to call attention to them. I mean, the, a lot of the blood effects that you see in Django are, are practical, and it's why they look so great. But I know that just for safety reasons, um, there's got to be visual effects used just for people on the set so they don't right. get you know their faces blown off. Um, so he's, he's sticking to his guns in a way that isn't backward thinking. It's just, it's almost parallel. He's using the best tool that's still available to depict his vision. And his vision is, it has an old actor that you haven't seen in 30 years. And I'm using a camera that was designed, you know, 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, an artist who works in oils or, or a sculptor who uses a chisel, it, these artists aren't considered Luddites. Why don't you use a Dremel right. tool to make your Rodan, you know, co- I don't know. So he's... <laughs> He's he's using the tool that he wants to use, and anyone who would judge the tool that an artist uses, it makes it shouldn't make no difference to them, right. unless there's a cost, unless the ticket costs more or hmm. or or something along those lines. But he's in love with the medium 
a film, I think, because the medium of film is as close as you can get to the human eye, uh-huh. uh, in, in, in it's, it's organic, as organic as a piece of synthetic material can be. <laughs> there you go. Okay, well, I mean, uh, we, we only got a little bit of time before we should move on to the next one, but I just want to quickly sample the room about, uh, you know, we're all old, relatively speaking. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I, I'm, hey, pro- for yourself. I'm not I'm not old enough to have sampled what Tarantino sampled when he was a kid because he's significantly older than I am. Um, I was thinking about I, I know how how my generation, the Generation X, thinks about Tarantino and how um, a, a lot of us are infatuated with him. I just wonder how uh, Tarantino's works will move across generations that are younger than ours, generations that don't. Get get to have a, sort of a sampling of this encyclopedic knowledge of film culture. Who don't who don't don't understand why you can watch the first oh fifty or sixty minutes of Pulp Fiction before you ever see a piece of technology which makes you think that it's not take place t- takes place in the seventies. Mm-hmm. The first time you see Vincent Vega's cell phone is the only time you ever actually see or hear anything that places it in the time that it is. Um, I just wonder how your if oh God I can't believe I'm going to say this how millennials. <laughs> Or those that are younger than millennials, how they're going to take a Quentin Tarantino movie. I get the impression that it's all perspective. I mean, I feel guilty. I, the only way I can think of this is um, subjecting myself to films that my grandparents might have saw when they were younger. And that they had a generational sort of context of what was going on that I never did. Like uh, the idea of using phone numbers with names instead of just digits, for example, sure. like that, that like Klondike. little nuances, Klondike. I think. <laughs> yeah. Or um, like this area was called Ferndale, like hmm. right where we're sitting. Hmm. I'd never would have known that. Right. But, you know, good old grandpappy told me that sort of thing. And <laughs> you know, <laughs> anyway, like just the idea of that there will always be kind of small things that you'll miss. Hmm. And the notion of Pulp Fiction with the cell phone, I had completely forgotten about that. But hmm. I think, like, my niece, who is just now 19, I don't think she would have caught it. Hmm. So, what, what about you, Mike? Are they, are they gonna, are these gonna age well, do you think? I think they already have. Hmm. I think, oh, to interrupt, I'm sorry. To, to be fair, I think there's a difference between something not being caught and aging well. I think you can still tell a timeless story and, like, little things like technological hiccups getting missed. Yeah, I think that uh, somebody can watch one of his more recent films and it feels like a recent film. I know that there's some artists, and I notice this in comic books a lot too, that some artists are of the time that they were at their height and they just keep making stuff that over time becomes more and more an anachronism Hmm. and other people adjust. And I think he's adjusted really, really well. And I think a lot of it is that he's matured. Mm -hmm. Not in the way like uh, Matt was saying where they're afraid to show violence on screen because again... His movies are his babies, mm-hmm. but I think that he has a very different perspective, which is so weird about Jackie Brown being as slow and deliberate as it is, mm. because it was like his sophomore movie after his big break. He did Pulp Fiction, which was all about hip dialogue and people being cool and fast and young, and then it made a movie about people getting old, mm-hmm. people getting old who kind of wonder if they're still relevant and don't know they can do this shit forever because shit I'm like 40 something and this is how far I've come I don't want to end like this I don't want to be this for the rest of my life and that wasn't exactly what people wanted but Tarantino 
does what he wants. And he did a movie that was remarkably mature, not mature in the fact that there's violence or profanity, mature in its perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think he's only gotten better since then. I Mm -hmm. look at Django and I say, what would a millennial think of, say, Django Unchained or Inglorious Bastards? I think they go, man, this movie is badass. (laughs) And the interesting thing, though, is as he's matured, you know, he's done more historical stuff. Of course. Which I think kind of takes that whole idea of everything sort of being reminiscent of the 70s and putting it in a totally different, obviously, perspective because Mm. the movies that he's doing now are based in, you know, different times. Right. Okay. Well, uh, we're going to move on to the next section. We'll be back with High Point, Low Point. All right, we're back with this panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians. Now it's time for High Point, Low Point. It's where we go to the top of the mountain, the bottom of the barrel. I'm going to start with you, Mike. What's your low point for Quentin Tarantino? I I come into this with a little bit of hesitation. I feel a little bit ambivalent about this, but I'm going to say Kill Bill. Oh. Wow. Uh, I hmm. like Kill Bill for the most part. I just don't think it measures up to his other movies. I look at the stuff that he's done with, say, Django Unchained and Inglorious Bastards, which are more recent films. They are very tight. And as Matt said, the real strength of Tarantino is he takes these old bits that he loved and repurposes them, shines them up, brings them back, actors and premises, genres. And then those little bits in between where we have this memory of the movie and we go back and all those middle bits are just as shiny and awesome and new and they don't feel like it's filler as when we revisit those older films, that was always his real strength. But I look at Kill Bill, and it feels like it's a clearinghouse for leftover ideas. Hmm. I see hmm. that Quentin Tarantino has maybe always wanted to do a kung fu movie. Maybe he's always wanted to do a movie about assassins. He's always wanted to do an anime movie, maybe. He's wanted to do a scene with somebody battling a room full of ninjas. <laughs> so he just took all of these... Fox Wars 5 movie, for sure. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's like all these leftover bits that he wants to do. Either he turns them into a conversation in a movie, or he just can't find a place for them. And it felt like he had that leftover box of parts from all those Lego things he'd been building over the years. He's like, I bet you I could make something out of these leftover bits. And it feels like it, it feels like Kill Bill is that movie. Hmm. Do you think that a lot of the stuff that ended up having a budget and ended up ended up getting filmed in Kill Bill might have been better addressed by like talking head scenes? It's possible. Well, like, they just no, they just shunted and... all of the talking heads, all the dialogue to the second movie. Like that's what mm, yeah. seems that's what's so strange about that movie to me is that um, it is functionally two different movies that have the same characters and are following the same plot. It's just that most of the most of the stuff that's really, really, really very interesting is happening in the very first movie. <laughs> it's crazy to me. Like, why do they have the scene where Michael Madsen's character goes to his work and has this, you know, with his asshole boss? It doesn't it it doesn't it really doesn't do much of anything other than I mean he has some misses for sure but yeah it it it's it's it seems like a broken movie in that respect. I mean the pieces are all really good. I yeah. li- there's a lot of wonderful moments. I think my favorite bit in that entire four hour movie is the scene where Uma Thurman is literally punching her way out yeah. of a grave. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and it's such a claustrophobic, scary moment. And it really feels terrifying. And watching it in a theater, it's amazing because a theater is about as comfortable a room as you can have. Yeah. It's a giant room and it's dark 
and it's cool and it's comfortable. It's about as built for getting 500 people to sit together in a room comfortably <laughs> as possible. And yet mm. that scene, when I watched it on a big screen in a multiplex, it felt so, uh, yeah. it felt like the walls were closing in on me. Yeah. And, and, and actually, if I'm not mistaken, Matt, correct me if I'm wrong. Don't they, in the theatrical versions of that, didn't the aspect ratio of the film change for slightly? It like kind of like a... It like pillar boxed in to sort of make the frame they, more claustrophobic. Yeah, I think that they, I think they did play with that to make it more claustrophobic. Yeah, I, yeah. Don't, I don't know if it survives on the digital prints, but um. I haven't actually seen it digitally. I just oh. saw it in theaters, oh, okay. but I can definitely attest to the fact that it does feel claustrophobic, mm-hmm. whether he accomplished it that way or not with aspect ratio. But for me, those moments are wonderful. There's some great fight scenes. There's some awesome uh, character interactions. David Carradine is wonderful in this movie. I mean, he is born to play this character. Mm. But those individual great pieces just don't come together to make a story. Mm. They come together to be bits and pieces that are left over that maybe weren't big enough to be a movie on their own. So he just kind of forced them together. And it gets into that point where maybe the bits that work as sort of the mortar to the brick of those scenes just isn't as strong. Mm. Because there's one thing about Tarantino is that the mortar is as strong as the bricks. The down moments are as exciting and as compelling as the action sequence and the big moments. And he just doesn't really have it there. And it feels like Kill Bill is probably the most accurate movie to remaking that thing from the 70s, where the punctuated moments are so great and memorable, but the rest of it is just so utterly forgettable. Yeah, interesting. Okay, Matt, what about you? Uh, Low point for Quentin Tarantino? Um. I have to say, I fell out of love with Quentin Tarantino for a while, and then um, I came to the conclusion that it was just in between films that I felt that way about him. And once I saw his something new was coming out, I became excited, and I saw it, and I thought, okay, this is great. I'm glad he's still doing what he's doing. But in between, I do sort of fall out of love with him. And when Mm -hmm. I hear people who are talking highly about him in between his films, I sort of I sort of question their tastes, <laughs> which is interesting, which is interesting because I because I like what he does. But I think it's because of his acting. Hmm. And I don't mean his acting in other people's films or 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 even his, 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 when he did in Pulp Fiction or or, or especially in, in Reservoir Dogs, which I think is great. It's the acting he does in Django. Oh, is it that and accent? That whole, <laughs> well, Someone, someone, he came across, clearly came across someone or a situation that explained to him that, yes, there were Australians, uh, I'm sure there was one, uh, <laughs> that existed in the Old South. And and he decided that maybe because he thought he could pull it off, that he would play this character. And it, I'm not going to say it ruined the movie for me, but it didn't. But it's an example of sometimes, I think, what he does, which he does very rarely, but that Kevin Smith does continually. And it's he maybe undoes himself by injecting what he thinks is comedy or himself Uh to sort of undo a grand master work like the very end of Django. You've got this epic thing and then let's throw kind of a gag at the end. And it does it work. Yes. But is it a way to sort of run away from responsibility of creating something and going here? Look, I, I created this edgy wonderful creative piece of art but don't take it too seriously (laughs) because because if they don't like it then they don't like you and Mm -hmm. he puts himself almost in a sort of 
masochistic way. He puts himself on the screen. He knows that that character can be played by. He could have had Paul Hogan do that. The whole place. Oh my god, crazy. that would have been incredible. <laughs> right. right, but for all been... we know, that was what was going to happen. And Paul Hogan, you know, missed his flight. You don't know. Like Kill Bill. Oh. Uh, 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 what's uh, Bill was supposed to be played by um, Warren Beatty. Oh, oh shit! Oh wow! And, right. And Warren Beatty was in the movie, going to be in the movie. Uh, Quentin was going to play the the uh, Pai Mei or whatever, the Kung Fu guy. <laughs> and, <laughs> right, yes. And had makeup and everything and was going to do that. The real Pai Mei guy, uh, became, who's famous, became available. or so, so, so then he did that. But Warren Beatty was going to be Bill and uh, wanted a private jet to fly him to China. And Quentin said, no, no one gets that kind of treatment on this film. And he, so he said, well, if you don't want me, then I'm going to go, you know, uh, somewhere else. So then you end up with someone who's actually way more appropriate mm-hmm. for the role. It's an example, I think, of, I mean, putting Warren Beatty where he is, where he doesn't make sense, was him almost trying to undo himself, I think. And mm-hmm. it almost karmically worked out for him because you end up having uh, the per- almost the perfect bill. Uh, as as is so i guess my low point for quentin tarantino would be that there is there are moments in his films where it seems like he's trying to undo himself and uh and i mm. wish he would stop trying to do that because i want to see what it looks like when he when he uh when he really goes for it and is overly confident about the story and message he's trying to uh get across okay well i, I i'd like to give him some more confidence <laughs> uh roslyn what about you low point okay um to put this in perspective, there is are it very... other people are shit. No, it's one particular person is <laughs> oh. shit, and I'll oh. get into it. Okay. So, um, my my misanthropy is kind of narrowed down this episode. Mm-hmm. But um, to put it in perspective, there is very little I dislike about Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, the the low point Matt brought up, I I even like the kind of ham fisted things where maybe it doesn't necessarily work when he puts himself in his own movies, but um. This actually goes back to the M. Night Shyamalan panel that I did ages ago. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I would like, as as much as I dislike M. Night Shyamalan's movies, I think he would be an okay guy to hang out with. I have the opposite reaction with Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Quentin Tarantino, every time I see him in public media, yes, he tells people to fuck off and he's edgy. But at the end of the day, my opinion of him does not matter his art to me does and i really like the art he produces but he's an asshole <laughs> like i would never okay. want to be in an elevator with the guy i wouldn't want to sit and get to know him or talk to him i i'd watch his movies but as a person i don't think i'd really care for him at all hmm. so and, no point is him and i and i think <laughs> i think i'm going to echo both of you guys in that uh um so i just rewatched his segment on four rooms uh, which is the very last one that has him. Him is basically the main character, and also Tim Roth's bellboy as the main character. Um, and I, saying this, it's four rooms. It's almost inconsequential, given how important the rest of his movies actually are to his to his catalog. But this counts, right? Um, it was, you know, first movie after Pulp Fiction too. This is the first thing he directed. Um, it's it's him. I mean, it's him <laughs> playing that character. It's him. It's him being the. It's him being him. He's Quentin Tarantino, even though the character has a different name. And uh, it's funny for that movie. It's I, I saw it so long ago that it was his his scene, his his quarter of it was the most memorable of, out of all of them, which isn't saying that much because it was kind of a cheap movie, a cheap looking movie. Um, yeah. Tarantino is just awful. Like he just. <laughs> 
it's not. It's not. I, I mean, I mean, there are there are worse. Miscast. He's miscast. Yeah, he's miscast. There are worse people in that movie than him. It's just the. It's just the. Actually, I think Bruce Willis is terrible in that scene too. Like he just keeps calling his wife a bitch over and over again, and I don't. I, it's it. Some of that just seems so superfluous. I think it's just that it seems so superfluous. Is that it, is that w- putting himself in it seems extraneous. It seems like it shouldn't be there, and it seems like it would be better served by a better actor. You know. Um, it's an ego piece for him, and I think he's best when he's behind the camera and we don't see his face. That's my little point. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's drag ourselves out of the gutter. Well, is he is he going to have a point oh seven Cosby, or is he going to be at a point one Cosby? Where is he? Cosby, I don't think the Cosby uh, uh, <laughs> is, is fair because you know you're talking about a rapist, and then <laughs> that's well, why I'm saying it's lower than one. It's, it's, Space you don't like, you know, or you know, or the demeanor. But but I do have to say that in twenty years from now or a year from now, if we find out that there are severed feet in his refrigerator or some poor actress got choked to death or something, none of us are going to be surprised. Uh, yeah, I think to achieve full Cosby, you have to commit a felony. Yes, that's probably true. Okay, let's drag ourselves out of the gutter. High point, Roslyn. Um, the visual style of his movies in every way has stuck with me. It's hmm. it's weird. I, okay. This is probably bad for you guys, considering that you have someone regularly on your panel that has very little cognizant memory of film most of the time. I have a habit of like watching something that is supposed to be like this movie you gotta see, and I promptly forget it ten minutes later and go, oh yeah, I watched that once. There were characters in it, and that's it. Hmm. Every one of Quentin Tarantino's movies I've seen, I remember the plot of. It's always like visually stunning, and I always remember what happens, hmm. and it's always ridiculously memorable. Which, given my, you know, drug-addled brain, as I was saying earlier, <laughs> is quite a feat. And I think it's it, it speaks to the spectacular level of filmmaking skill he has. Wow, well said, uh, Mike. High point for Quentin Tarantino. Now, I think this is one that you're going to like, Casey. And we actually heard a little bit of this before when Matt was talking, but I'm going to say it. It's going to be real squibs. <laughs> and I love the shit out of real squibs. And I know there's some folks out there that don't know what I'm... Rosalind's giving me that look yeah, like... Yeah, the stink eye is what I'm And I'm not you. talking about those people in the Harry Potter world who don't have powers. <laughs> or, well, I was thinking like the, the in grade school, they gave you like a mock syllabus. And yes. it was called a squib to me. So uh, a squib to those who don't know. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. Okay, a, a squib in... Uh, when you're watching a movie and a guy gets shot... Uh, nowadays, or a girl, or a girl. <laughs> let's let's not discriminate. Or everyone a child. Is, everyone, <laughs> so when or everyone's dogs. been shot, <laughs> that any hey, hey, okay, we can all equally be murdered. <laughs> <laughs> so when somebody is shot on screen, there's always going to be a blood burst. And nowadays, that usually is done in CGI. That there's a guy who stands off ca- or a girl. Who stands off camera and goes, Why are you gesturing at me? Am I about to be shot? (laughs) Hey, I don't discriminate. Um, There's somebody who stands off camera and points at you and goes, Bang! And then you have to react. That's the actor's job to go, Oh! And fall down. Now, that's not the way it used to do because we didn't always have CGI. So what did you do in a rated R movie when you needed to shoot somebody? That's what a squib is. A squib is a small explosive bag full of fake blood that you strap onto an actor and when they need to get shot somebody off camera hits a button and it explodes and unlike the cgi one you don't have to have somebody off camera tell you you need to react now you don't have to act when you've got a squib on you right because <laughs> boom and you're like ah and here's the thing squibs for an old practical effect are fucking amazing because we do have this sort of 
visual palette now that's much more refined. We can tell Yoda when he's a puppet versus Yoda when he's a CGI cartoon that hops around. And one of them just doesn't feel quite as real. Mm Mm-hmm. Squibs are amazing for that. Not only do they feel icky, but they feel real and they feel literally visceral. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you actually watch mm-hmm. somebody, like when you watch RoboCop and you watch that boardroom scene, <laughs> you react in a way that you don't when it's just CGI red mist that you see in movies. Now you're like, holy shit, that looks gross. And Django Unchained and Inglorious Bastards, this is a thing that Quentin Tarantino, along with him wanting to use film, he really wants to do it old school. He wants it to feel fucking real, and he wants it to feel gross. So when somebody blows up with a squib, he's like, no, no, got to be more meaty. <laughs> I want to see bits flying out of somebody. And there's something about actually seeing real blood on camera, that it doesn't have these randomized patterns that the computer decides, but this is real goo flying in the air. This is bits of a person, even if it's fake, and it just gives you a sense of this movie being more grounded in reality. It doesn't feel like a sanitized video game anymore. Mm. And when you have the heightened reality of a Quentin Tarantino movie, those moments where, like, Ellis Brittle is riding away on his horse and you see him get popped through the back with a rifle and his blood sprays across the cotton and he falls off his horse, you go, oh, shit. Or the gunfight at the end where... I think there's two separate guys who get shot in the dick in Django Unchained. <laughs> only movie I can think. I think the Red Letter Media guy said, I think this is the only movie nominated for Best Picture where a guy gets shot in the dick. <laughs> and I think it's true, but it you feel it in a way that you don't in a movie that doesn't use that practical effect. It gives it because that... The actor feels it. Yes. The actor feels <laughs> yes. it. You don't have to tell somebody how to react when a bomb on their crotch explodes. <laughs> and that's why I love real squibs. <laughs> Nice. All right, Matt Goodman, please enlighten us. Oh, I was going to say squibs, but no, um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, but that was brilliant, though. Um, well, I have a little personal one, but I, I think I think what I'm going to say is my high point for Quentin Tarantino is that he's he's uh, he's a screenwriter first. Mm-hmm. He has the vision. He puts it down on a piece of paper, shows it to other people, and he has the opportunity to make. What he decided, what he made the decision to put it on the page, and it ends up on the screen as it should. It's unfiltered. Hmm. And there really aren't uh, almost no screenwriters who, who've had the ability to do that. And when you see someone who does, it's either a total failure because they just shouldn't have been directing in the first place, or it's a major success like someone like Joss Whedon with the first Avengers film. Um, he puts this screenwriter ness on it that makes it better or someone like Shane Black who who's uh, who didn't get the opportunity to direct films for a long time but was involved in them very closely you know he's in Predator he was pretty close to the production of, of Lethal Weapon which is his first film and Lethal Weapon 2 and all these other things so these guys are sort of sitting in their underwear making up these stories <laughs> and then and then they have the ability to go out with a crew and actors and actually make the story real and it, it seems like it's coming straight from the tap and, you know, now that Shane Black has the ability to direct films, when he does, it's it's very similar to what Quentin Tarantino does, because there are things that would never make it past from one mind to another. Hmm. They'd say, I don't understand what this is about. This makes no sense to me. It's never going to work on screen. I'm not even going to try it. And if I try it, I'm not going to have my whole heart into it. So you end up with a sort of overdeveloped, 
less of a soul kind of a movie. And Quentin Tarantino is someone you can actually point to and say, not with a lot of money, not with a lot of, I don't know, you can still take from the page, go right to the screen from one mind. Someone like Woody Allen does it as well. And you're getting exactly what his vision was. And Quentin Tarantino established that in the modern era. And because of him, and because of his early work, we have, so like I said earlier, someone like Wes Anderson or someone like P.T. Anderson who have been given the opportunity to do almost the same exact thing. And they are, obviously their movies have gone in different genre tracks. And they're, But if it wasn't for Quentin Tarantino establishing this idea that there are writers out there whose vision is, is good enough and their, their directing abilities are good enough because of the vision, not because they went to film school or that they understand what lens goes where. Hmm. The idea that their vision, it can go from page to screen, really was something that you know we've almost never seen before. And the fact that there are two or three major filmmakers now who really work that way uh, is are sort of like my personal, professional high point for what Quentin Tarantino uh, uh, allows to happen now in modern film. And, and I think that there are people who have been influenced by those other directors and including him. And that is always going to be a good thing. I think when writers voices can actually, the writer can visually depict their, their story without having it to go through uh, somebody else's uh, prism. That's awesome. That's incredible. Well, I have my high point is nowhere near as personal as that. Um, but mine is Jackie Brown. So it was the first yes. Tarantino movie I saw in the theater and I was, 18 or however however old it was 17 or 18 um and i had this thought completely independently until i watched tarantino's interview with charlie rose at the time when he was promoting the show that yes it's not the kind of a movie that a hip young director in his early 30s makes just after he's done his magnum opus it's the movie that he makes when he's in his late 50s you know because it's about growing old um uh and this showcase this showcase to me sort of uh, his ability to make the old actor revival work, not only work, but work incredibly, make make that work. So, you know, Robert Forster as Max Cherry, bail bondsman. Um, Like, and it's because there's an earnestness. We always talk about being earnest. There's an earnest, there's a sincerity to his character um, that you just like, that you, you, you fall in love with him. You are rooting for him. He's the nice guy that always finishes last, I guess. Right. He's, he's completely the nice guy. Um, He's not just the kind of character that you root for, because you definitely do, but you kind of yearn for him, too. Like, there's just some piece of him that just, it feels so good to be on Max Cherry's side, and you and you uh, you want to do well. Like, there's, there's a beautiful line when um, he's talking with Jackie Brown about retiring, and he said, uh, he said, oh, I think I'm going to retire, too. I've been doing this for 19 years. And she's like, when did you decide that? And he's like, well, the night that I picked you up from, picked you up from county. And then you think that the, the connection being made is because I fell in love with you and I want to spend the rest of my time. But then the con- continues. And he said, no, after I dropped you off at, at your uh, – had a drink and dropped over your house, I broke into some guy's home, waited for him to come home and thought, what the fuck am I doing with my life? Like <laughs> that, that sequence of it had been like he could have just been a schmaltzy, romantic schlub. You know, um, of a character, but he wasn't. Like you were, you give a complete misdirection in terms of his sincerity and the way he was. He's a real person. Uh, yes, it is obviously a real person. Um, he 
he is a bail bondsman, and you know that means he is also has to be gruff, and sometimes he has to be violent. Um, but he seems gentle as your grandfather at the same time. The funny thing about this is that you could take that sort of um, dichotomy, I guess is the word you use, and you could apply mm. it to various characters in that. See, I, I get that sentiment from Max Cherry's character, but I felt that way about Jackie Brown herself as yes, well. Yes, a- absolutely. And, 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 sh- and she's the other half of what makes it great, right, is that she... She has the same thing. Yeah, right? she's reevaluating where she needs to be. Uh, the idea of she's made mistakes and, you know, not necessarily trying to atone, but trying to set things on a level, even keel for herself. is They were all very relatable qualities for all the characters. The impression I got to get in the movies is that everyone's in a place where this would be really fucking cool if I was 20, but now it's getting kind of sad. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah and I, I, but Jackie Brown is his only, Jackie Brown is his only adaptation and, yes. and a courageous one too because yes. he was con- at the time it was like oh he's just an elmore leonard ripoff yes and the, what did he do but he adapts an elmore leonard film and yeah. instead of people going oh what a lazy thing to do it, it turns out to be you know a perfect match made in heaven which he's never gone back and done again it's really one of his best movies yeah and and uh some might say and i don't think i'd say this is that it's because it has the least amount of quentin in it um you know uh yes. S- samuel jackson is unfortunately not playing a character all that different from Jules. They're same kind of like loudmouth thug who uh, who he's a lot st- less introspective than Jules. He's though. a lot less introspective. He's a lot nastier. Sure. But but uh, Ordell Roby could be Jules ten years before. Yeah, you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying. He he could be that. But I guess uh, I guess it's it's probably the Quentin Tarantino film that's probably aged the most. I would say um, because of the fact that it's in a very particular time and place, like shopping for cassettes. Mm-hmm. Is kind of you know kind of ends up ends up throwing it in a certain era, but but I could see Quentin Tarantino putting cassettes in a movie now, <laughs> right? I, I just I think well the... Max Cherry has a cassette player. I mean, you right. know what I mean, but would he right. put cassettes in a movie set in the antebellum South? <laughs> <laughs> oh, cassettes and Paul Hogan. <laughs> what could have right. been or David Bowie in World War Two? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, uh, thank you very much, guys. Uh, I had a great time, Matt Goodman. Thanks again for being here. Always a pleasure. Rosalind Townsend, thank you. Thank you. Hopefully you're seeing things more clearly now. Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) And Mike Gillis. Thank you, sir. All right. And uh, that's been a great panel, and we'll see you next month. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. I just thought he'd be European or something. Because he... Yeah, man, he's about as European as fucking English. I know that now. But was he cool or what? Thank you. Totally fucking cool. In control. Didn't even, you know, he didn't really get pissed when you were fucking with him. I was amazed. <laughs> Want some bacon? No, man, I don't eat pork. Are you Jewish? No, I ain't Jewish. I just don't dig on swine, that's all. Why not? Pigs are filthy animals. I don't eat filthy animals. Yeah, but bacon tastes good. Pork chops taste good. Hey, sewer rat may taste like pumpkin pie, but I'd never know because I wouldn't eat the filthy motherfuckers. Pigs sleep and root and shit. That's a filthy animal. I ain't eat nothing, ain't got sense enough to disregard its own feces. How about a dog? 
dog eats his own feces. I don't eat dog either. Yeah, but do you consider a dog to be a filthy animal? I wouldn't go so far as to call a dog filthy, but they're definitely dirty. But dogs got personality. Personality goes the wrong way. Uh, so by that rationale, if a pig had a better personality, he would cease to be a filthy animal. Is that true? Well, we have to be talking about one charming motherfucking pig. I mean, he had to be ten times more charming than that arm on Green Acres, you know what I'm saying? <laughs>